This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guest today is Aaron Maxwell. Aaron is an author, trainer, and software engineer. He presents the O'Reilly online training courses, Python Beyond the Basics and Python The Next Level. The next offering of Python The Next Level will take place on August 23rd and 24th. And you can sign up for that by going to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Go to Safari Books Online to find out more. Aaron is also the presenter of the Oreo online tutorial, Magically Crafting Your Own Python Syntax. And he is the author of the book, Powerful Python, The Most Impactful Patterns, Features, and Development strategies modern python provides we'll talk with aaron about all things python including python decorators generators and functions the transition from version 2 to version 3 and his contagious enthusiasm for python enjoy the show hi aaron welcome to the podcast hi jeff well you've been emphasizing the importance of writing software that other developers want to use especially by making it easy for other developers to use quickly can you talk about how Python enables this? I know you've pointed to Python's object model hooks, right? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, Jeff, you know, I have a perspective when I talk about this because I would really like to see more developers being more ambitious. So if you think about what we're doing when we write code, we want it to have a positive impact, right? You know, we do all do it for our own reasons, different ones. But generally speaking, I think most developers would like to see their code that they write have more of a positive impact, be more useful in the things that the software that they write does. One way to do that, to amplify that, is to write code that other people use, other developers use. Now, when a developer learns to write code that other developers want to use, it changes a lot in their career. It can change how other developers can look at you because what does it take for that to happen? Well, if you write some uh, library, for example, that you want to see other developers using, it has to do two things. One is it has to solve a problem that people care about that's important to them and is difficult to solve on their own. And you know that's a prerequisite. You can't really have anything happen without that in place. That's the most important part. Now, once that happens, though, there's a friction to adoption that you can reduce by making it easier for people to use that. Because consider two libraries that solve some hard problem really well. One of them is very easy to use. And one of them has a learning curve that the developer has to study the docs for a couple of days to do simple things which one of these two libraries is going to see much more adoption, right? Obviously, the first one. So this obviously applies to open source software development, but it applies to any software development because most developers, most of us are working on teams. We have other developers that we work with, and sometimes we work on our own. But whenever you're in a context where you're working with a team of at least one other developer besides yourself, there's the opportunity to write code that can help them, and that's leveraging your code. So that benefits you in some major ways. Other developers start looking up to you more. It, has, it increases the influence you have over whatever the company or organization that you're working with, whatever you're doing. And I think that not enough developers are dreaming of this kind of thing. That's why I talk about this a lot. Now, specifically in Python, there's a lot of features of Python that enable this. So one thing I did, was I looked at a lot of very successful, very popular 
open source libraries in the Python ecosystem. I looked at Django and Flask and Twisted and Pandas and SQL Alchemy, all of these. And I asked myself, what features of the Python language do they use? And that became that became a big focus of my book, Powerful Python. It became a the focus of the O'Reilly course, uh, Python, the next level that we've been teaching. Uh, but I'll, I'll mention, there, and there's a lot to that, but one in particular, I think, is really demonstrated extremely well by Pandas. So Pandas is a data analysis library. It's very, very successful because it does these two things really well. It solves a problem that people care about extremely well, and it has such a gentle learning curve, you can become productive with it almost with with very little mental effort. One of the things it does is it utilizes Python's hooks in its object system in, let's say, very creative ways. It does things that it actually enables a little some many languages within the normal Python syntax that are almost cognitively, they, they hook into how people naturally think in certain deep ways, and that makes it very easy for them to use. And so that involves doing some unconventional thinking on the part of the developer. It's a lot of, it's, it's, it does take a substantial effort on the part of you, the developer, writing a library like this, but the results are so worth it. I believe one of the big reasons Pandas has become so successful is is that they designed it with an interface that was extremely easy to use. I think that's a great demonstration that all of this can follow. Well, let's get into some more Python nitty-gritty, so to speak. You gave a presentation at OzCon back in May called Mastering Python Decorators. Can you talk about what decorators can do and about how hard it might be to master them? Oh my gosh, yeah. That was a, a fun class, a, a fun workshop to teach. It was uh, also very challenging. So. Briefly, I can put it this way. Decorators in Python are a way to add behavior around groups of functions and methods. And so that's a little bit of a vague statement about it. I can make it more specific. It's about saying that, okay, there's this pattern in the code where I notice where this group of functions, I'll say it's functions and methods both, but I'll just say functions, where they're all executing this block of code at the beginning, or they're all executing this block of code at the end. And that's something that's difficult to encapsulate and not repeat yourself in your code using certain other mechanism, the other mechanism Python provides. Uh, so decorators are a way to add code that executes before a function starts or after it returns or both and wrap that around that function as well. Now, that's kind of interesting as an idea. It's a little bit abstract. Uh, it's It's something that some developers may have encountered before some people listening to it. If you've uh, worked with um, aspect-oriented programming, aspect J, that's very similar to this idea, or there's a decorator design pattern, or if anyone's worked in Lisp in the meta-object protocol uh, in uh, uh, the advice system it's called here, this is the same idea. It's about adding behavior around. Now, how do you actually implement Because one reason it's so hard to teach this is because to be able to use a decorator in Python is very simple. The syntax is very straightforward. It's something that someone learning programming the first day of their life, they can learn to do it, use a decorator the same day that they 
learn to write a function. Uh, It's very easy to use a decorator, but to write a decorator, to create a decorator that other developers can use is not easy. It's not a beginner topic. It barely qualifies as an intermediate topic because there are so many elements of Python that you need to understand if you want to understand what you're doing. And that's, you know, you can always just copy paste recipes without, you know, this kind of cargo cult programming, right? I think, you know, we've, we all do that from time to time. I don't like to do it, but I do it. But that's not what we are going for as developers who are working to master our craft, right? Well, in order to understand how to write your own decorators, you have to understand variable arguments and argument unpacking. You have to have a deep understanding of how Python's abstraction about functions as objects and how to work with that. That's just the foundation as well. So to teach that class, it was such a challenge because I needed to bring everybody up from the start. And I wasn't sure how, honestly, I wasn't sure at the end if I did a good job or not. But some people came up and said, thank thank me. So I guess it was okay. Uh, But there's actually a couple of reasons I love it when developers learn to write decorators. And one of the reasons ties back to what I said before about developers being more ambitious about spreading the benefits of your coding efforts to other developers and letting them use re- reuse your code. And decorators are an outstanding vehicle for that. Because think think about it this way. Decorators enable you to capture patterns of code reuse that cannot be captured any other way. And they, there's such a high point of leverage with it because you, since a decorator is applied to a large group of functions and methods, you can modify the behavior of vast classes, uh, vast swaths of your code just by changing the implementation of the decorator. It affects all those functions and methods that are decorated. So, and on top of that, it's it's trivially easy to use a decorator. So if you solve a problem that your teammates are facing and you package it in a decorator, their barrier to using that is almost zero cognitively, right? It's just easier. They just type syntactically, they just type at sign decorator name and then define the function or method. So um, so there's no barrier there that um, it's not like if you define some other solution and there's a learning curve, they have to take an afternoon to figure out how to use it, incorporating their code without breaking anything. Decorators are much less susceptible to that kind of thing. There's very low friction. So that's one reason I love it when people want to learn about decorators in Python. And there's another benefit too, which is that, and to me, this is almost more exciting because learning to write decorators has so much of more advanced features of Python that you must learn in order to do it. In the process of learning to write decorators, you can't help but deepen your mastery of Python as a language. If someone listening to this, if you're if you're listening to this and you really want to learn Python very, very well, I really encourage you to learn to write decorators. And it'll be hard. You know, the, there are classes and things like mine and others that are very, very helpful. And, um, you know, you want to take advantage of those. But when you get to the end, when you get to where you can write decorators in Python, you'll find that you have learned Python much more deeply. To me, that's one a very exciting reason to learn them as well. On to something else I know you found exciting. You've also said that when you discovered Python generators, it changed the way you wrote software forever, even when writing in other languages. So why do Python generators have such a big impact? 
Yeah, that was uh, people thought that was a, a strong statement. I said Python generators change how I wrote code forever. You know, so uh, Python's not the only language I I use. I'm you know, it's the only when I teach. I think it's important for every developer to be fluent in multiple languages and to learn new languages over time. Uh, you know, but I, I think over the course of our career, over the course of our growth and our mastery of our craft, we have certain experiences where we learn something while coding in one language that just opens our eyes, that get, that goes makes us go, aha, and makes us understand the craft of software that much more deeply such that it permanently changes how we write software in every language. And I remember experiencing one of those when I really understood how generators work in Python and what they're useful for. Because generators are... You know, it's it's kind of hard to describe everything generators give you in just one, in just a sentence or two, uh, but they are, you know, I guess, part of it's they are a useful tool for capturing certain encapsul- encapsulation patterns and code organization patterns. Uh, but there's another big purpose for them that's very important in the modern age, because we are in the age of big data, no matter what kind of software we're writing, it's something we have to consider most of us how to write software that scales with increasing orders of magnitude of data and as processing and python generators are an excellent tool for implementing scalable software highly scalable software that does not run out of memory to be specific that can scale so that you write a program so that if you you write a program that can process uh uh, input file that has four megabytes of data, and then a couple of years around the world, somebody attempts to feed like you know a three gigabyte file to it. Did you anticipate that? How can you defensively write your software to scale to increasing input sizes to increasing data sizes? Because it's you know it's something we need to think about. It, this is not a trend that's slowing down. I don't see any sign of it. And so Python generators are really built for that, to solve that particular problem. And in the process of understanding that, it really changed some of the mental models I had about how to think about how our programs work. And generators are just a device for implementing uh, scalability in Python. It's not unique to Python. Well, the the precise way it's done is unique to Python, but a lot of the general ideas are useful in other languages, which to me is more important. Uh, you know, we all have too much to learn. And if I have a enough time to learn one of two different language features. And one of them is something I know I will be able to apply to other languages I use in the future. That's going to be, that's probably a better use of your time to study, right? So that's what, uh, in incorporating your code. So that, it really did influence me. It was, it was kind of a turning point personally. You mentioned your own mental models a moment ago. Let's talk about Python functions now, because you've written in the past that you think about Python functions using two different mental models. Can you explain this? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I think I know what you're... I think you're referring to this blog post I wrote that was by far the most controversial thing I've ever written, ever. It was... <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, some people got really like um, energetic over that one. What I was doing in this, it was a little bit different. A lot of my articles are, are very um, code-heavy, but this one was a little bit different. It was almost looking at more the cognitive aspects of what we're doing, which I think is important. Because one of our biggest assets as software engineering professionals 
is our mental flexibility and our ability to adopt new ideas and work with them and try them out and have the flexibility to say, okay, I'm going to think in this new way for a while and try it on like I'm trying on a hat. And then I can decide, is this worthwhile? Is it worthwhile to think this way? Is it more powerful to think this way? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. And so we having that mental flexibility helps us deal with the ongoing change that we just have to deal with. It's part of what we do. So the motivation when I wrote this article was I wanted to get people to learn to think of functions as objects, because there are a lot of very useful design patterns, very powerful abstractions that just open up to you when you learn to work with functions as objects and all that entails in Python semantics. You know, Python's not a functional language in the sense that like Haskell is. It does not support tail recursion, for example, but it is functional in some other senses. It has a lot of functional abstractions. And the most important one, I think, is working with functions as objects. And I found that a lot of people have trouble learning to think with them, learning to reason about them correctly. So what I did in this was kind of experimental. I, I said the following. I said, now, if you have some Python code, it says def f open close parenthesis colon, and then somebody, um, some lines of code in the body. Now, if I say def f, the way most people think about it is it, that what that statement does, def f, that creates a function named f. Okay, very nothing, no trick here. That's like the normal way we think about it, right? So uh, that's that's the mental model that we have, and. I want to invite you to think about this a little bit differently, just temporarily. You can not think about it this way afterwards if you prefer. But as a mental exercise, think about if you see def f in Python, imagine what that does is create a anonymous function object. It creates a function with no name and it stores it in a variable named f. Now, what I did was I said, okay, if you try on this way of thinking, it turns out that it's at least as correct in most of the ways of thinking that the more traditional way is, meaning that, okay, so if I say here, I have a function named F, what does that mean? Well, I can call F, that kind of thing, right? So uh, I can do this thing with it. I can do that thing with it. And this alternate way of reasoning about it also leads to that. It's, it's, it's an unfamiliar way of thinking, though, which I think is why it was kind of disturbing to some people. But the benefit of thinking that way is that a lot of things like passing functions to objects are as uh, passing functions as arguments to other functions or creating a function and return inside the body of another function and returning it and doing a lot of things with that are very fundamental how decorators work for example this is one of the things that the one of the things you have to start seeing into the matrix in order to understand how to write decorators this is one of them and it's an uncomfortable way of thinking because i've noticed that um, so I, I, I invest about these days, about half my time I'm coding and about half the time I'm writing and teaching. So that's about how I split my time. And, uh, and I worked full time as a software developer for over a decade before I started this. So um, and I, I work with all, and teach a lot of people who are coming from different languages like Java or Perl 
or C or, you know, C sharp. And it's, I think it's one reason I think it's so important for other developers to, for every developer to master many different languages is because it teaches them that each language has its own metaphors. Each language has its own ideas, its own abstractions. And it's important to develop the mental flexibility to switch between them because that's what opens up the potential to be really exceptional as a developer. When you have those moments of insight, when you're like on fire, you're in the flow, you you know yourself as one of those 10x developers or 100x, you're like, wow, I'm just really cranking through here. And just this, this creative process, you know, we want more of that, right? And so that's why I really encourage people to be as mentally flexible as they can. And it's a learning process. Sometimes it takes a while for it to unfold too. Well, let's talk about something that's being discussed in the Python community now. The Python ecosystem is undergoing this big transition from version two to version three. Can you tell us what you see happening there? Yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot there. That's really interesting. So, you know, just a little bit of history as we're Seeing this, the most recent version of Python is Python 3.6. And so it's it's pretty far into the three series. And for a long time, you know, the earlier versions of Python 3 up to at least 3.2, maybe even 3.3, were very transitional versions of the language. You didn't really want to start using them for production code then. Um, but we're at this point now where Python 3 is very solid and it, and completely acceptable as a replacement to version two. And there's a whole swelling movement towards three. So I've been teaching classes for O'Reilly for like the better part of a year now. And what I've noticed is at the start of every Python class, I do a quick poll, raise your hand or tell me if you're using Python two, who's using Python three. I do just do a quick poll and I teach, you know, both version of the language in the class, but the I just check where people are. And I noticed about a year ago, it was something like 15, 20% said they were using Python 3 and the vast majority said they were using Python 2. Now what's happening is like all this year, it's been increasing a little bit every month. So now most classes, it's a majority of people say, I'm coding in Python 3. And there's some other things that are happening too, right? Most of the Linux distributions, I believe by now, they've moved to including Python 3 only. And Python 2 is a separate installation, the package you have to install. Uh, a lot of open source projects like uh, Django and many of the data science um, uh, libraries have stated that they have plans to, at some point in the foreseeable future, stop supporting Python 3. And just I've just noticed a lot more enthusiasm about it. So there's this transition that's happening right now. We are now crossing a sigmoidal inflection point and... And that's just really exciting to see because, you know, there were there was kind of a big delay, right? The Between the time Python 3 started, um, you know, basically Python 2 point, reached the version 2.7. And there was this really long island of stability where if you decided you wanted to code in Python, you didn't have to decide which version because de facto, the version you were going to use was 2.7 because... Python 3 wasn't there yet or was not perceived as being there yet. Some people still believe that. I believe they're wrong. But there's, and then, you know, you wouldn't use an earlier version because they were obsoleted by 2.7. And I think a lot of people were very frustrated about how long it took for Python 3 to start get this massive momentum. And I, I was one of them. Uh, and, you know, certainly a lot of the core maintainers were. 
but I, I have to say, though, I think that the long island of stability around Python 2.7, which lasted for years, I think it was really, really good for Python because there was no, you know, there's this paradox of choice, right? Where people, there's a lot of studies in marketing, in marketing and sales where if people are given too much choice about which variant of a product to buy, then they just won't buy any of them. They'll go to them completely different. You know, they won't buy the product at all or they'll buy from a competitor or something. So there, a lot of the decision about which version of Python to use was kind of made for you for a long time. And we've noticed that coincidence with that, coincident with that, Python has gotten more and more and more popular, right? So, you know, in Safari, like I, I know that the Python learning resources are massively popular. It's one of the most popular, widely used languages in the world now. And I think it's actually the delay. You know, at the time I was frustrated because I like some of the Python 3 only features. There's some really exciting features in Python 3, like asynchronous programming that have no equivalent in um, you know Python 2. But I, I have to admit now that it, it's, it's really been good for the language in adoption. And it sure looks to me like we're past a turning point. So I expect it to just kind of continue snowballing from here. Aaron, you mentioned earlier that you're fluent in a lot of different languages, but you've written that, that a main reason that you're drawn to Python, apart from uh, so-called objective reasons, is because of a sense of fun and personal fulfillment that it gives you. So talk about why Python appeals to you on those levels. Oh, sure, sure. So things like fun and enthusiasm and just joy, I think are it's really smart to kind of go for that where you have the opportunity to do that. I mean, we're we're professionals. It's not, I mean, we're not kids, we're adults and we there's a job to do and we do it, right? Whatever the tool is, whatever the right tool is. Uh, but I think there's no matter what language you were using, because it's not really specific to Python. Uh, you know, one of the other languages I've been learning a lot is Scala. And I really like that I, as my own, my background is in theoretical physics. It's a very, Scala is a much more mathematical language in its type system. And there's a lot of fun in that. But what's the objective value of fun in any kind of work? That if we properly harness and direct it, it can actually lead to us getting a lot more accomplished that we feel really good about. And so part of that is what we accomplish professionally in our work. Because if we're, you know, all things being equal, you know, I, you know, I think a lot about uh, happiness and fulfillment and how that can bring in um, in what we're doing. And, you know, part a big part of most adults is, uh, of the happiness of our life is, you know, is our work going well? You know, it's not the only thing, you know, families, you know, probably more important even, you know, if we're going to spend most of our waking hours doing something, how can we bring more enthusiastic, more fun into it? You know, and if we if we can do it, then we ought to. So um, now about Python specifically, I think it just happens to be, you know, I, I certainly, Jeff, I don't mean to imply that Python is more fun than any other language. I, I That's sincerely not what I believe. Uh, I, I do find that for me personally, I, I just know that if I can bring that enthusiasm in, I can create higher quality software that I'm really proud of more quickly. And in many cases, we're engineering domains in which Python is appropriate uh, for it, that, you know, Python's an appropriate language for that engineering domain, then it's easier to get into that 
a lot of times, I find, just because it's, um, you know, there's another thing I've noticed. There are a lot of people who are using Python who are not professional software engineers. Uh, they're smart people in some other domain, like a lot of hard scientists, like, uh, you know, biologists, chemists, physicists are, you know, are increasingly need to write software as part of their data analysis and experimental analysis and other work. And um, one thing I've noticed about Python is that Python is a, a language that seems to be easy for people who are not trained in programming, but who are otherwise smart to be able to quickly pick up and be productive with. That's something I've noticed a lot. And I think part of it comes down to a lot of choices in Python's design. There's a really good balance of how certain features are implemented and how they fit together. And that just reduces the friction because, you know, I don't like coding itself. I like what's what I'm doing with it. And I, I think most people listening can relate. So that's why Python appeals to me in that level a little bit more than most other languages, personally. Well, Aaron Maxwell, it's been great speaking with you. And if our listeners want to find out more about you and what you're doing, where can they go? Oh, they can just go to my website, PowerfulPython.com. Aaron Maxwell, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Been a pleasure. Well, the O'Reilly Fluent Conference was held in San Jose in late June, and here to talk about some of the insights that were shared there is Allie McDonald, an O'Reilly editor and one of the program chairs at Fluent. Hi, Allie. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Good. So it seemed like there was a lot of discussion about progressive web apps, the newest trends in that area, and how companies are adopting progressive web app practices in their own app. Uh, can you talk about what we learned about this at, at Fluent? Yeah. So, I mean, at Fluent, we have um, such a wide range of topic areas. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, in the past couple of years, we've had talks, especially um, some from Google, where the Chrome team has done a lot to push progressive web apps forward. Um, so we'd had, you know, some talks about the future there. And it'd been kind of a bleeding edge topic area. But this year, we're starting to see, you know, sessions from you know, developers at all different types of companies talking on some of the different aspects of, you know, the, the progressive web apps themselves, it's, it's a marketing term used to really identify this emerging set of standards and technologies that come together to create, you know, native-like experiences on the mobile web. So, um, you know, adopting things like service workers and working with building out, you know, real-time notifications and offline um, access and really figuring out a way to architect your your app to work in the way a native app might have worked, you know, with iOS or Android or something like that, but um, just using JavaScript and the tools around the, the open web to um, create these new new apps. So, you know, we had great talks um, during the sessions. We had a keynote from Adi Asmani who showed off a lot of um, interesting ways that teams are using progressive web apps in production. So that was great. Um, we have that um, clip on the website for people who want to check that out. Um, so you can see how companies like Twitter um, are adopting progressive web apps and, and how, this how these technologies are sort of coming together and really starting to, to find their stride, I think. And there were also a number of keynotes that covered less technical, but still very important topics related to what you might call soft skills, uh, team building, decision making abilities, those kind of things, right? Yeah, we had so we had this idea, the overriding theme of the conference being building a better web. And uh, when talking with a lot of the you know invited keynote speakers, one one topic that came up was sort of 
the range of decisions and sort of overwhelming amount of choice and um, just options there are on the web today from what, you know, framework you use to the tooling that you use and and all all the things that go into creating a website or or a web app um, has become really complicated and very layered. So we actually had some talks that did a really good job filling the space and sort of kind of finding some clarity by looking back on the past a little bit and showing where, you know, it helps to kind of look at trends, how they've developed, how they sort of mirror today's trends, and also to just take a step back and to evaluate your space, your team, the things that you need for your own workflow, um, rather than just chasing after every new tool or framework or, you know, new thing on Medium or the most starred project on GitHub doesn't necessarily mean that you have to learn it right away. So it was nice to have some refresh, refreshing talks that took a step back and really reinforced the idea that you don't need to know everything. It's important to um, develop your skills in the foundational areas for the web. That's you know HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Once you have a real you know mastery of the foundations there, the world is kind of your oyster, and you can take a look at really any tool you want. But um, it was a nice blend, I think, of talks that made sure people were not feeling too overwhelmed on the side of, you know, there's so many choices, so many things to, to look at. Um, it can be kind of a kind of a big space. And again, you can view videos from the Fluent Conference. Right now, there are about a dozen of the keynote addresses that you can view by going to Safari at Safari Books Online. Allie McDonald, thank you very much for joining us here. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you all very much for listening. And once again, our first guest, Aaron Maxwell's online training sessions, videos, and books can be found on Safari, O'Reilly's comprehensive technology and business learning platform. And we'll have links to all those items in the show notes that accompany this episode. And if you like what we're doing here, why not subscribe to the podcast? Do it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn so you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.